History is the unfolding of God's providence. What that means is everything that happens in time is simply the unfolding of God's plan directed by him in the affairs of men and women. He is behind the actions of men, both small and great men, both small and great actions. While God's attention and his care and his plan are behind all that transpires, everything that happens, there are times as you look at the record of God's workings in the affairs of men, when there are times and events that are what I call remarkable providences. They just stand out. They're to be remarked on and thus remarkable. And one such time occurred over 200 years ago now at the establishment of our nation. Have you ever considered all the great men that God in his providence brought together for such a time as that? If you want to just do a profitable study, you know, just look up again the names that you learned in history like John Adams. His wife Abigail in her own right was a great woman. He was a Christian man and a man of virtue and God used his intellectual abilities and his moral capacities to be a key player in the founding of our country, Thomas Jefferson. Brilliant writer and the drafter of our Declaration of Independence and our third president, James Madison, who was the key architect of our Constitution. Ben Franklin, philosopher, inventor, statesman, Alexander Hamilton, our first Secretary of the Treasury. They called it something different back then. Madison and Hamilton and a fellow named John Jay collaborated together to write something called the Federalist Papers. And if you just want to get a glimpse of the brilliance of these guys, just get a copy of the, the Federalist Papers and see how they mused, how they thought about issues of governance. And among all of these extraordinary men, these extraordinarily great men, and many more could be named, one man stands out even among them. One writer said correctly that George Washington was first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. And for good reason. He's known as the father of our country. This man was commander-in-chief of the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War. Many of you know some of the stories about the travails that he had to endure and lead his men through in that war. He was the one who presided over. He was the president of the Constitutional Convention that gave us our Constitution. And he was, of course, our first president. He said just some amazing things. He said things like, you do well to wish to learn our arts and way of life and above all the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you greater and happier people than you are. He said in his last inaugural address, or excuse me, his farewell address, while we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not to be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. 
He said in that same address, the blessing and protection of heaven are at all times necessary, but especially so in times of public distress and danger. The general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. And he said, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice and to love mercy and to demean ourselves with that charity and humility and pacific temper of the mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. You could go on and on about the marvelous things that this man said. And God prepared him for the task to which he called him at that time. God prepared him growing up. George Washington wrote something called Rules of Civility. You can Google George Washington's Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. 110 of them. 110 rules of how you're to behave when you're in the presence of other people. He wrote these when he was a boy. And it, a number of them are pedantic. Today they would seem very stuffy. But we would do well to remember some of them. He said, rule number one, every action done in company ought to be done with some sign of respect to those that are present. He said, in the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise nor drum with your fingers or feet. Here's one that's very important to me. This is one of his rules. Sleep not when others speak. <laughs> he said, turn not your back to others, especially in speaking. Jog not the table or desk on which another reads or writes. Lean not upon anyone. He said this, read no letters, books, or papers in company. And where there's the necessity for doing it, you must ask leave. Now, if he were alive today, he would say something like this. Don't text when you're with other people. And he would have written it as a teenager. So let me say on George Washington's behalf, to all of us, don't do that. Do not laugh too loud or too much at any public spectacle and on he went. God prepared this man. Now, why the history lesson? Well, because in our text today in Hebrews chapter 3, we have one mentioned who was esteemed, who was revered by his countrymen at least as much. No, really even more than George Washington is, for good reason, revered by Americans. In our passage in verses 1 through 6 of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 2, 3, and 5, mention the great man, Moses. And the reason that the author of Hebrews is now going to turn his attention to who Moses is and a comparison of one even greater than Moses is because, thus far together in the first two chapters, we've seen that the author of Hebrews has shown that Jesus is superior to all of the prophets who have come before him and all would-be prophets who would come after him. He has shown that he is superior to even angels. He has shown 
at the beginning of chapter 2, that Jesus is what humanity was intended to be. And so where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Our relationship to Adam, the first Adam, our first representative, makes us sinners. But if we're related to Jesus, we become saints. The first Adam brought death. Jesus brings life. So he said that Jesus is superior to the prophets and and even to angels. He is what humanity was intended to be, but there would be some who would read this letter. Nor rather they would hear this letter, because you all know that not everybody had a copy of the letter. And so they they would hear it read, and they would say, okay, Jesus is greater than the angels. But I know someone else who is greater than the angels, none other than Moses. In fact, one of the rabbis said in the second century, quote, God ranked Moses higher than the ministering angels themselves. And this person would think, rightly, Moses was a prophet without equal. And so in many minds, they would say he was and is the greatest human ever. And so the question is, how does Jesus compare than to Moses. Moses was the father of his country. He was the one that people looked to and revered just as we might George Washington even more so. He was the one to whom God gave the law in the founding of the country. And remember to whom this letter of Hebrews is written. It's written to Jewish Christians. Those of the Hebrew nation, Hebrew background. And Moses then is their forebear. And it's impossible, absolutely impossible to overestimate the reverence that the Jews, the Hebrews had for Moses. Let me go through with you a bit some of the career of Moses so that you have a sense of why they revered this man as much as they did. Remember that Moses was divinely chosen for the task that God gave him. His life at its very beginning was miraculously preserved and nurtured. And then under the sentence of death, he was plucked from the bulrushes by Pharaoh's daughter. You all remember that? And he was given this noble upbringing with his real mother attending to him as a nursemaid. And then as a man, his election as deliverer was sealed when God said to him, I am. And he ordained Moses at the event of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Moses became the incomparable deliverer of God's people from bondage in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 7 through 12, we have recorded there the plagues that God brought upon the mighty nation of Egypt through the hand of Moses. And those chapters tell us that the Nile turned to blood. There were successive plagues of frogs and gnats and flies that swarmed upon Egypt. And hail and boils afflicted both man and beast. And on a dark night that we now call Passover, all the firstborn of both man and beast who were not under the blood perished. And with his staff, you remember, Moses parted the Red Sea. The people crossed through. With his staff, he smote the rock and all of Israel drank Delivering power radiated from Moses' life. He was chosen by God. He was their deliverer. He was thirdly their greatest prophet. God would communicate to Moses 
in ways that he did not to the other prophets. He would communicate to them indirectly through various means, but he communicated directly to Moses. Notice what the Bible says about how God communicated to this man Moses. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. By the way, that phrase, he is faithful in all my house, is quoted in our passage in Hebrews chapter 3. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. And you'll recall that that is, in fact, how Moses received the Ten Commandments. At which time his exposure to God was so profound that his face retained this wonderful brightness when he came down from the mountain. Moses was the lawgiver for the nation. And to the Jew, to those with the background to whom the writer of Hebrews is addressing his letter. To the Jew, the law was the greatest thing in all the world. And Moses was the conduit, the one through whom came the Ten Commandments and the the Levitical laws and the sacrificial system and the tabernacle. And everything in their religion had Moses' name attached to it. It was called the the law of Moses. He was Israel's great historian as well. Under divine inspiration, Moses recorded the first five books of your Bible. And he recorded the history of God's dealings with his people. And then last, this man, for all of his greatness, was still an extremely humble man. And God had prepared him for his great tasks by humbling him first in a wandering in the wilderness. He was humbled. In fact, the Bible says of Moses, he was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. It's no wonder then. As the writer of Hebrews sets to pen a letter to show that Jesus is superior, better than anyone or anything in his universe, that those who are reading this letter would say, but what about Moses? There's surely no one greater than than him. In fact, it could be said that their reverence for Moses was such that the titles they would ascribe to him would be Moses, the great apostle and high priest of our religion. Apostle simply means this, one who is sent. Moses was surely sent by God, was he not? In a marvelous way, the great apostle. And he was a high priest as well. Now, if you know a little bit about the career of Moses, we span some of it here, but if you remember, Moses was not technically a priest. He had Aaron as a priest, and Aaron was the leader of the other priests. But the truth is, even though Aaron was the one who was technically a priest, it was was Moses and not Aaron, Aaron who was Israel's true advocate with God. Do you remember Aaron and her had to hold the arms of, of who up? Moses. In order for God to act. You remember it was God who intervened. It was Moses who intervened to God on behalf of his people time and time again. And the people understood this. They understood that there has been no prophet like Moses. Because of that, 
This is what the Bible says about him. Since Moses, no prophet has arisen in all of Israel like him, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Moses, the sent one, the high priest of our religion. But notice what the writer in chapter 3 and verse 1 says about Jesus. Holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. It is a fact that Moses was sent by God. It is a fact that Moses intervened for God's people to God as a priest. But even so, Jesus is the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. This title introduces Jesus' superiority to Moses, who was the apostle and the high priest of the first part of your Bible. And Jesus is said to be the apostle, the sent one, but the sent one par excellence. Jesus repeatedly described himself when he walked the earth over ten times in the Gospel of John alone as being sent by the Father into the world. Jesus is the first apostle, the great apostle. He's the source of all apostleship. And his apostleship is prior to all of the others who have been sent. And he's the foundation of all of those who would follow. Jesus being sent and having accomplished the purpose for which he was sent, signified mission accomplished because all of the other prophets and all of those who had been sent prior to him all pointed to him. And Jesus is our high priest par excellence. Jesus has a relationship with God the Father from eternity past. Jesus is a high priest who can, as we saw last week, not only sympathize but empathize with all that we endure. He has the most privileged position in the universe. He sits at the right hand of Almighty God. So how does Jesus compare to Moses? Well, Jesus is, as I say in the first point in your outline, Jesus is to be esteemed above all others. And that would include Moses. And hear me, friends. As we say, Jesus is to be esteemed before, above all others. If he's to, to be esteemed before Moses, there is no one and there is no thing in your life that can compare to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. If Moses really can't compare, then forgive the grammar, you ain't got nobody else who can compare either. He is to be esteemed above all others. Now I want you to just hold this thought for a few moments, and we'll come back to it at the end of our time together. But Jesus is to be esteemed above all others. 
And you may say, I esteem Jesus more than Moses. I get that. There's no way and there's never been a time that I've ever thought of Moses as more important than Jesus. And I buy that. I'm sure that's true of you. That's true of me as well. I don't come from this Jewish background. I'm not in the same situation these folks were in, so I don't have the same reverence for Moses that they would have. But make no mistake, every last one of us has persons in our lives that we revere more than Jesus. That we esteem higher than Jesus. And I want you to just think about that for a few moments. Is there anyone in my life who can cause me to disobey Jesus? If there is anyone in your life who could cause you to reject what Jesus said, And do something because of what they might say or how they might react. Hear this. They have become more important than Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is telling us unequivocally. We are to esteem no one. Including the revered, deservedly so, Moses. Let alone the people that we tend to revere in our own lives. We'll come back to that. I just want you to think about that for a bit. We must esteem no one higher than Jesus. And why do we esteem Jesus as we do? Because, I say secondly in your outline, because Jesus is to be esteemed above all others for what he does. He is the apostle and high priest whom we confess in verse 2 says, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Now consider for a bit the faithfulness of Jesus. Faithful to the one who appointed him, who sent him as an apostle, just as God had sent Moses an apostle as an apostle, a sent one for his purpose. Jesus was faithful to all that God appointed him to do. And what was that? Well, it was to come as God. Becoming man to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. It was to speak the words of God to those who desperately need it. And so Peter would say, Lord, where can we go? It is you who has the words of life. And so he came faithfully to do what we could not do for ourselves. He came and he spoke. He came and he did. He died. He gave his life, not for himself, but for us. He rose from the grave. He is alive. He is watching these proceedings. He is with us. Jesus is with us right now. He was faithful in all that God had appointed him to do, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. But Jesus, because of Who he is and what he did has been found of greater worth, greater honor than Moses, the first part of verse 3. Which is the second reason that we are to esteem Jesus above all others, including Moses. And that is not only because of what he does, but because of who he is. And I want you to notice very carefully verse 4. Every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. 
Now, notice in verse three that Jesus is compared to Moses, just as the builder who would be Jesus is of greater honor than the house, which in that verse then is Moses. Jesus is the builder. And then in verse four, it says every house is built by someone. But who built this house? God. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying in verses three and four, without doubt, is that Jesus is God. The reason that Jesus is to be esteemed higher than Moses or anybody else is, yes, what he did, but also who he is. And who is he? He is God. Moses was a prophet who spoke about God. But the Bible teaches very clearly Jesus is the God about whom those prophets spoke. Moses understood that himself. He knew that he was pointing to one greater than himself. And when Jesus walked the earth, he referred time and again to the writings of Moses and applied those writings to himself. And so the Bible says this. Jesus says to his detractors in John chapter 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. And then after Jesus had risen from the dead and he walked the earth for 40 days before ascending back to the Father. You may remember in Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, he encountered two followers of his who didn't immediately recognize him. And he walked with them on a road to a town called Emmaus. And here's what the Bible says about that. Beginning with Moses. And all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus is to be esteemed above all others because of what he has done, but also because of who he is. And verse 5 makes that distinction between who Moses was and who Jesus is. In saying Moses was faithful, notice, as a servant in all God's house, testifying what would be said in the future, as we've seen from these passages. But Christ, verse 6, is faithful not just as a servant, but as a son in God's house. Verses 3 and 4 tell us he came as man, but he was none other than God, the God-man. And now in verse number 6, although Moses was a servant in all of God's house, Jesus is a son. And we saw in chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 1 in verse 3, that he is called the son of God, the exact representation of his being, the brightness of his glory. You all remember that from chapter one. And so the writer of Hebrews is here again, reminding us that he is a servant, but he's not just a servant. He has the very, very character quality of God. He is the son. Jesus is to be esteemed above all others because of what he does and because of who he is. And how long is that supposed to go on? Continually. The one who comes to Jesus and clings to Jesus for salvation, for rescue from his sin and the consequences of that sin is to cling to Jesus, not just today, not just tomorrow, but forever. He was, he is, and he always will be the apostle and the high priest of our profession. And that's why the last part of verse 6 
teaches us that Jesus is to be esteemed above all others continually, forever. Notice. And he changes the metaphor just a bit. Remember, Moses was the house back in verse 3. Now we're the house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. And so there's a question, a question for these readers, these hearers of this letter. Are you going to remain faithful to the one that you have begun with? Are you going to go back to something that is clearly inferior? Jesus is to be esteemed above all others because of what he does and because of who he is. And he is to be esteemed above all others. Not just this week, not just this year, but continually, forever. And those who truly come to him, the Bible teaches throughout the book of Hebrews and throughout the book, the entirety of it, persevere in the profession that they have in Jesus. They persevere in their walk with Jesus. They continually cling to Jesus. You say, okay, I'm good with all that. Remember the question that I asked you some minutes ago? Do you revere Moses more than you do Christ? Probably nobody here has ever been tempted to do that. But when the writer of Hebrews says Jesus is to be esteemed above Moses, he is saying he's to be esteemed above everyone. And make no mistake, friends, I have temptations and you have temptations to esteem other people higher than Jesus. And I'd like to talk with you for a few minutes about that. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word fear in the Bible does mean there are times where we tremble before the Lord. We're afraid because we are still sinners. We still hide ourselves because of our sin. There are times for us to be afraid of the consequences of what we have done. There is that sense of fear. But very often the word fear in Scripture means an awe. God is awesome. He hold, we, we are held in awe when we think about and behold our God. Reverence. We revere Him. We esteem Him above all others. Fear of the Lord, esteem for the Lord, reverence for the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But there's another kind of reverence, another kind of esteem, another kind of fear that the Bible speaks of. It's called the fear of man. Here's what it says. The fear of man will prove to be a snare that will entrap you. Reverence for people will entrap you. Inordinate esteem of people will entrap you. How does that happen? Well, when we're teenagers, we call it peer pressure. Because everybody's doing it. Because I care more about what everybody else thinks than what God thinks, then I have to do it too, says the teenager. And many of us have been there and done that. Many of you young people are in that right now. It starts before our teenage years, but below that we have our kids in children's church, so I'll let them deal with that. 
But when we're teenagers, we call it peer pressure. When we're older, we call it being a people pleaser. I don't want anybody to be upset with me, and so I won't confront their sin. Because I hate confrontation, I want everybody to just get along. We won't deal with the elephant in the room that requires reconciliation according to biblical means. And so we just let it go. Why? Because we revere people more than we revere Christ. Christ says, if your brother sins, you go to him. Here's the process. Here's what you do. I, your God, tell you to do this. And yet we say no. I'm worried about what they will think. Or we may give it a clinical flavor and call it codependency. I've become codependent upon my, on my husband or my, or my wife. Such that I can't get along without, in life without him or her. Did you know, friends, there is no one in the world, if we truly esteem Jesus as we are, there's no one in the world that we need more than Jesus. No one. And if we truly cling to Jesus, we really do have all that we need. That spouse, those children, that father, that mother, that revered teacher, whoever it may be, are a gift to you from the hand of Jesus. They don't belong to you. They belong to him. And they've come to you from his head. How dare I? How dare we say, I can't survive without a creature? When I have holding my hand the creator. And yet we have people who struggle to go on after they've lost a loved one. Now please understand, friend, I don't mean to be insensitive. I've dealt with many a loss and much grief in my ministry. And living in a sinful world, we will again, no doubt. And it's painful and it's difficult and we grieve, and rightly so, when we lose a loved one. But Jesus says, I have work for you to do. I have things for you to do. I tell you, these are my marching orders for you. Who are we to tell Jesus, I can't do what you tell me to do unless this other person is here? We cannot esteem people more than Jesus. Many of us live in the fear. Some of you live in the fear of what someone else has done to you or might potentially do to you. And as a result, it paralyzes you. It keeps you from doing what you know Jesus has told you to do. And when we do that, friends, we are revering, esteeming, fearing people more than Jesus. Now, what's the antidote? What's the answer to all of that? Then? The writer of Hebrews gives it to us in verse 1. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3. Holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, do this. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. That word fix means give your full attention, your full thoughts, which require 
your first desire to be focused on Jesus. We must, and we will take time in just a moment when we bow before the Lord, we must confess the sin of Lord desiring someone or something more than you. Lord, I confess and I repent of that and restore to me, restore to us the desire for you above all else, everyone else. And then when I have that desire, I am able to fix my attention, my thoughts, carefully considering who Jesus is as the apostle and the high priest of what we confess. Let's take time to do that together now. Let's bow before the Lord.